Anybody ever heard of a man named Penn Gillette? Sound familiar? What about Penn and Teller? So Penn Gillette is the taller guy there, the uh, famous magicians. And uh, there's something that Penn said that I was reminded of recently, and I want to share that with you as we begin this morning. Now, I want you to keep in mind, Penn Gillette, unfortunately, is an atheist. But I want you to keep something in mind that he said. He said as follows, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now, that's just another word for evangelize. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. An atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, so Penn doesn't agree with that mindset either. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Pretty compelling stuff from an atheist. Pretty compelling point for a jumping off point on a study of evangelism. If you had a cure, a 100% effective cure for cancer, would you tell people about it? Well, of course you would. This is one of the diseases that is rampant in our world today. Of course you would tell people. Why? Because you love them and you want them to be made whole again. And yet we have the cure for something much worse than cancer, and that is sin. We have the cure right here in our hands. The question is, will we tell people about the cure? At least Penn Gillette was convicted enough to believe that if there were a God, and we know there is, but at least Penn Gillette was convicted enough that if there were a God, then he's worth telling people about. The question I want to ask this morning is evangelism, what will it take? One of the parts of the plan of salvation is confession. Jesus said, Whoever confesses me before my Father, or before men rather, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. How many Christians, the day that they were born again, the day that they became Christians, they were baptized into Christ, how many Christians did that, but never again? How many Christians confessed Christ on that day, but never again? It's kind of like the guy who tells his wife, I told you I love you the day we got married, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. Do we treat Christ the same way? Romans 1 verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Are we ashamed? 
And what makes us ashamed? A little social awkwardness, as Penn puts it. The fact that we have been conditioned by society to keep things to ourselves. May it never be. There's a song that the children often sing, Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Do we believe it enough to shout it from the rooftops? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, has come. I want us to look at this crucial topic of evangelism this morning. What will it take? And the first thing I want us to notice is what will happen if we fail? What will happen if we fail to evangelize? If we fail to evangelize, then a world that is absolutely turned upside down in sin will remain that way. A world that is turned upside down in sin. Acts 17 verse 6 says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now they spoke derogatorily, but they spoke the truth. They had turned the world upside down with the gospel, or rather they had turned it back right side up would be a better way to say it. But they were speaking derogatorily. The world is absolutely caught up, given up, tossed up, and burnt up in sin. We see it all around us. And it's our job to set things back right again through our evangelistic efforts to the best of our ability. It is our job to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. The church in the first century, they did it. They turned the world upside down. And you talk about a wicked world that they lived in, I guarantee you, by comparison, the world that they lived in was much worse in many ways. But they did it. And they had a price to pay. Many of the Christians paid the ultimate price for their stand for Christ. We asked the question, was it worth it? Absolutely it was worth it. Whatever price may be paid to seek and save the lost. If we fail to evangelize, then souls will be lost. Jesus said that he must be about his father's business. Luke 2 and verse 49. Pray tell what was the family business. What was the family business of Christ? Saving souls. Luke 19 verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the family business and we are the family of God. We're going to notice that tonight. In Ephesians chapter 2, Church of Christ needs to be taking up the family business of saving souls. But if we fail to evangelize, the question must be asked, do we really love God? Do we really love God's creation, including the souls that he created and put within all of mankind? Certainly, hopefully we all say that we do. But many people say that they love God, but it is not necessarily going to make it so. There is a passage in the book of 1 John that I'd like us to look at several verses from. 1 John chapter 3. Do we say that we love God, but we don't practice righteousness? Because 1 John chapter 3 verse 10 
says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, usually in most contexts in the church and in reading of the Scriptures, when we talk about a brother, we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. But what about the brother in the sense of our fellow man? Do we love our brothers and sisters in humanity? Do we love them enough that we are willing to take the message that will save them from this terrible thing called sin? Will we take it to them? Do we say that we love God, but we hate people? 1 John 3, verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Oftentimes we want to jump to, we might term them the extreme sins. And say, well, those are the worst, you know, like murder. Jesus says, even if you hate somebody, you're just as guilty. You might as well be as guilty of of murder if you hate somebody. Do we say we love God, but we're unwilling to give up our life for others? Verse 16, 1 John chapter 3, But by this we know love, because He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And finally, do we say that we love God, but we don't help other people? Verse 17, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Jump to verse 18 as well. John writes, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, we don't need to just give lip service to the idea of loving God. It's not about what we say, it's about what we do. In our actions, in our deeds, as well as in the truth, putting our love into action with the truth, guiding us in all things that we do. We should love one another, whether it be our brethren, which are Christians, which is really mostly what he's dealing with in this context, or our brethren in humanity as well. Let us love one another. Brethren, sometimes we need a gut check. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, do we really love God? Do we really honestly and wholly love His creation? Do we really, honestly love souls to the point that we will do what it takes to reach them in our interactions with them? Our next point this morning, I really want you to bear with me. I have a sermon that I've always wanted to preach, but I've never preached it. And the reason I haven't preached it is because it is a moving sermon. It's one of those sermons that will move the audience or the preacher will be having to move. So I'm just going to give you a little glimpse of it this morning. won't give you the whole thing, but I want to ask you a question. Now, the answer to the question is no, 
but sometimes it looks like a yes. Let me ask you the question. Are the denominations winning? I don't really like that term winning, but that's the best way I could try to explain what I mean here. The answer, of course, is no. But sometimes does it not have the appearance of yes? I want you to think about this this morning. If I were to ask you which group of people that claim to be Christians are the most well-known for their benevolence programs, I'll ask that again. Which group of people who claim to be Christians are most well-known for their benevolence programs? And I'll give you a hint. They ring bells during Christmas time. And you may have dropped off some clothing to them at some point in your life, which I don't do that because I don't want to condone their their false teachings. What would the answer be? Would it be the Salvation Army? My question is, why is the Salvation Army known for that when it should be the Lord's church? Here's another one from back home in Louisiana. If you were to ask which church in West Monroe, Louisiana, is winning, quote-unquote, and I don't really like that term, but it was the best I could come up with. Which church in West Monroe, Louisiana, is winning, if you will, when it comes to church attendance? I wish I could say that it was the Lord's church. But there was an apostolic church in West Monroe, Louisiana. I kid you not. I lived about five or six blocks from them, just about every day of the week. They were there. Not only were they there, but the parking lot was full. Now, I'll throw this caveat out there. I don't know what kind of gimmicks are going on there. I don't know what kind of things are drawing those crowds. I'll give you that because we know that sometimes there will be things done in the name of religion that will sure draw a crowd, but they're not the right things. They're not the things that we read of in the Scripture. So I understand that. But that said, I can tell you this, those, those folks sure are dedicated every day of the week just about. In fact, the, the uh, minister or whatever he calls himself lived in a little camper right beside it. So he could go right back and forth constantly preaching to those folks. Are they winning? Now let's get back to evangelism. If I were to ask you which religious group is most well-known for evangelism, what would the answer be? There's actually probably a couple of them. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. So much so that if you get a knock on your door and there are two guys there looking like that, with their suits and ties on, or at least their shirts and ties on, you're probably going to know exactly who they are. And depending on whether or not you want to get into a Bible discussion with them, you're either going to answer the door or you're going to pretend like you're not home. Hopefully, we'll answer the door and we'll try to teach them. My question for us, and by the way, when we were uh, in preaching school, The only time we didn't have to wear a tie was when we went door knocking because they didn't want us to get confused with the Mormons. But my question for you this morning is, why are they the ones who are so well known for evangelism and it's not us? 
Obviously, I'm not condoning any of these religious groups that are teaching error. I don't want you to mistake why I bring this up this morning. I'm not condoning uh, their errors. But I am saying and asking, have you ever wondered why they're beating us, quote-unquote, if I can use that term? Something to think about, something to ponder this morning. So I want to ask you this morning, what will it take for more to evangelize in the Lord's body in this day and age? It's going to take Christians who truly know their Bibles. It's not going to do much good to talk about the Bible with people if we don't know our Bibles. Which is why we're told to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And again, notice that word, ashamed, and make the connection back to Romans 1.16. Paul was not ashamed. And surely when you confess the name of Christ the day that you were baptized, surely you were not ashamed, but do you continue to confess the name of Christ every day of your life? In your actions, in your lifestyle, and in your telling others about Him whenever you have the opportunity. We cannot be ashamed. We can be that if we truly know the Word of God backwards and forwards to the best of our ability so that we can teach others about it. That means that we will need to have a good handle on the differences between the patriarchal law, dividing, rightly dividing the Word of Truth there at the end, the patriarchal law, which Noah lived under and others, the law of Moses that the Israelites lived under in the Old Testament, the law of Christ that we live under in the New Testament. Speaking of the Old Testament and the New Testament, can we explain the distinction and the differences? Can we go to Hebrews and explain the timing of the New Testament coming in and the death of the testator and what that means? Do we know whether or not we are still under the Ten Commandments? Do we know whether or not? Can we properly use cross-references in our Bible to explain prophecies of Christ and His church? Can we point out what it means to worship God and how we do that in spirit and in truth? Can we point out what it means to worship God? Can we also point out to someone the simple plan of salvation? These are all things that we need to know backwards and forwards as Christians. We need to know them enough to be able to explain them. One of the best ways to prepare for a test in school is to do what? To know it well enough that you're able to teach it to one of your fellow students. If And that's why study groups are so good. And if you're in a study group, you don't need to have one person leading it up every time, kids, just to help you in school. You need to take turns leading up that study group, and you need to know the material so well that you can teach your friends the material. If you can do it, I guarantee you you're going to do well on the test. One of the best ways to be able to master material is to know it so well that you're able to teach someone else. Do you know the material that is the gospel so well that you're able to teach someone else? What about the test that is the faithful Christian life? Are we passing the test 
Penn Jillette pointed out at the beginning this morning, do we even care enough to attempt to teach others what we know about the Bible? If not, why not? 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That brings me to the next point, which is how do we present ourselves to the world around us? Do we present ourselves as a hopeful people? Do we present ourselves as the eternal optimist? Or do we present ourselves with heads hung low? Do we present ourselves with mindsets of, oh no, the world is is falling or the sky is falling, right? Or are we optimistic? In spite of whatever happens in our lives, in the world, because we know where we're going. Do we walk around with smiles on our face, joy in our hearts, and hope in our outlook of this life? If we're not, then how in the world would we expect somebody to ask us a reason for the hope that is in us? They're not going to do it because they're not going to see the hope that is in us. How's our attitude? How's our outlook? We need to make sure that they're right so that then, in seeing our hope, we can then give them an answer for the hope that is in us. What else will it take for evangelism to take off again in the Lord's church? This last one might sound a little crazy, but it might take persecution. When people are being persecuted for their faith, and yet people notice that they still refuse to give up their faith, those people want to know why. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7 and 8. Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. This is, of course, Stephen, the uh, first Christian martyr. He gets through with this wonderful sermon on what the Jews had done to Christ. Let me ask you this, was Stephen ashamed? Not at all. Verse 54, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, what a sight that must have been. Here Stephen is going through one of the worst things that you can possibly go through in the human experience, but he sees the Son of Man who promised to be with him. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he promised to be with all who take on his great commission. And in just a few moments after this, Stephen will be in paradise. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Of course, we know the rest of the story with Saul. But at this point, he was adamantly opposed to Christians, kind of like the world to a large degree is adamantly opposed to Christians today. Look at chapter, or, uh, verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He passed away. Now look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Notice, the only ones staying put are the apostles. These are everyday Christians who are scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him, verses 3 and 4. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house. That's a rough time for the church, entering every house, making havoc, and dragging off men and women committing them to prison. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. God, through His mighty providence, and through a situation of turmoil for Christians, still saw to it that the word of God was preached when they were scattered because of that intense persecution. And through his providential care, the church rapidly grew during that moment. I wonder, and this is all conjecture, this is me wondering, but I wonder what will happen in the Lord's church in the, in the coming decades as the tide continues to turn in the realm of public opinion against the church. I suspect that Christians, because of the hope that is in them, the ones who are truly faithful to Christ, are going to take this message anyway to the lost, dying world, and I believe the church may start growing again. But that's what it's going to take. It will take hearts that are open to the gospel in the world, but it will take our hearts truly being open to spreading that gospel for the church, the world over, and especially here, as we have seen this in recent decades. It's going to take that for us to start seeing this again, to see it truly, rapidly, exponentially growing again. I believe it can and very well will happen, but we've got to do our job. We've got to be faithful. What will it take to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Christ 
Really? Let's set it right side up. Will we obey the Lord's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? How can we do that? How can we go into all the world preaching the gospel if we're not willing to go into all of Marietta? If we're not willing to go into all of Love County? If we're not willing to go into all of Oklahoma? And if we're not willing to go into all the United States, how will we go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Will we tell them, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned? That's the message of Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. If we truly believe that ourselves, we will tell people. Because we don't want them to be lost in all of eternity in a horrible place called hell. The cure for cancer. The person who's about to be hit by a truck. The family who's facing the danger of a fire. I believe every one of us would would save those people in those circumstances if we have the ability to do so. What about sin? Are we willing to save people who are in the situation of sin? They're still sinners. There's a difference between a sinner and a saint, one who has been sanctified by the blood of Christ. Will we take it to them? We'll finish this morning with the haunting words of a haunting song. You never mention him to me. When in the better land, before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls will be. If any lost one there should cry in deep despair, you never mention him to me. You never mentioned him to me. You helped me not the light to see. You met me day by day and knew I was astray, yet never mentioned him to me. There are two more verses to that song, but may it never be said of me, may it never be said of you, you never mentioned him to me. Evangelism, we know that we need to do it. What will it take to get us all to do it? Think about your life this morning. If you receiving the gospel message of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection for you, his blood that can save you, it has the power to do so. Receiving that word this morning, if you haven't responded to it yet, why not? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, having repented of your sins and believing on Christ with all of your heart, confessing his name before before this audience this morning. And remember, continue to confess him throughout your life. Don't be ashamed. Do that this morning or come for any other reason as together we stand and sing. What's up, guys? It's Caleb and Michael over here from the Scattered Abroad Network, and we just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to this episode. Yeah, we're so thankful to the East Hill Church of Christ for overseeing this network, and we're grateful to God for this opportunity. And don't forget, you can check out our show notes below for all of our social media links, email address, website, and we have a monthly newsletter, so don't forget to sign up for that. Please remember to leave us a rating or a review on whatever platform it is that you use, And please continue to keep our network in your prayers. As always, thank you again so much for listening. Be ready tomorrow. We have brand new content coming out here on the SAN. Thanks so much, and God bless.